In our last episode, we talked about the relationship between knowledge translation and communications, including one of the subcategories, health communications. With this episode, we want to bring to light the decisions that are often not understood to the fullest without knowing the complexities of decision-making in health communication. We especially want to include what goes on in the background to make decisions on how to communicate, what content, and when to relevant stakeholders. COVID-19 is the perfect case study for this conversation. Hello and welcome to Raincoat. My name is Isabel. And I'm Sarah. And we are excited to share how academia, industry and communities can work together on complex problems and improve knowledge translation. Today, we're excited to have Dr. Bonnie Henry with us for this conversation, where we will cover how she actively used the tools and skills discussed in our last episode. Dr. Henry has worked with the World Health Organization for Polio Eradication, the Toronto Public Health Authority in response to the SARS and H1N1 outbreaks, and now is BC's top doctor as a provincial health officer during the COVID-19 pandemic. Before we get started on what your daily work entails, we are curious, what prompted you to work in public health? Oh, a really good question. And thank you for having me here today. Um, you know, I was working as a, a family physician for a number of years, and then I uh, went down to uh, San Diego with um, my now ex-husband's job and started working in an inner city communi uh, community clinic in San Diego and realized that there was so much that needed to be done on a population basis, not just individual one-on-one -on -one medicine. And so I ended up um, going to UCSD and taking uh, extra, doing a master's in public health and then doing uh, specialty training in, in public health and preventive medicine, um, partly at UCSD. And then when I came back to Canada doing the, uh, the public health preventive medicine residency program through the U of T and finishing up there. So um, it really spoke to me about the fact that as clinicians, um, we are really focused on doing the best that we can for that patient in front of us. But there are so many other things that make a difference in that person's life that are beyond the control of just one individual. And in public health, we can take measures that affect what we call the social determinants of health, the things that lead to people having health good health and uh, mental health and wellness um, on a broader population level. So that really spoke to me. You spoke about making a difference and that that's meaningful and was one of the reasons why you are in public health. So did that change over time in your career, this meaning or the reason of why you were in public health? Yeah, you, you know, not uh, the, the absolute reason behind it, not at all. As a matter of fact, it, I, it became more and more apparent to me, having gone through a number of different parts of my career as a physician, um, that this is where I needed to be and this is where my passion was, looking at a variety of different issues, because there's always something new and uh, different that we need to pay attention to. In, in public health, and whether it's the toxic drug crises, whether it's the latest outbreak, whether it's um, trying to find ways to ensure that we have safe drinking water in different parts of the, the province or the country, there's just no end to things that um, make a huge difference. And in public health, you, you have that view that you can make a difference at a, at a broader level. And I've become more and more passionate about it as, as I spend more time in public health. 
Since public health covers so many different aspects, can you describe what a great day in your job looks like? A little bit of day in the life background. Well, in the last two years, <laughs> it's, it's been really focused on, you know, one of the things that I, I actually do have it within the broad scope of public health. A lot of my experience and my interests have been in infectious diseases and communicable diseases and outbreak management. And I've um, spent a lot of time developing working both nationally and internationally on things like pandemic influenza preparedness and planning. And in November of 2019, in the before times, as I call it, I was actually in Rome with a, an international group looking at um, what we call uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions or public health measures that you can do to help manage a pandemic. And little did we know that very soon we would be using all of these tools that we have to, to try and manage things here. So in the last two years, my, my life has really been focused on, on two really important things, the managing through this pandemic, but also the, the trying to do what we can to, to manage the toxic drug crisis, which continues, um, particularly here in BC, to, to cause so much tragedy every day. So very different um, and complex issues that, uh, um, means that I start my day quite early in the morning. I'm an early bird person, so <laughs> I start about five o'clock, 5.30 in the morning, and then uh, I often am doing various things um, through most of the day, and I usually get home about seven o'clock in the evening, and um, then I'm early to bed because that's been my life for the last two years. <laughs> so. Before that, it was a lot more exciting. A lot, you know, I did a lot of, of traveling around. Uh, I did a lot of work with, uh, I have a number of groups that I'm involved with, with the World Health Organization and other, uh, other groups. But, um, you know, this, this has been, this has been a, a crisis that has been a global uh, storm that we've all been in. And so trying to, the many, many different pieces that we're talking to every day, it's, uh, it's amazing. Um, and I, I think it's, you know, we're getting to a good place, but it's exhausting <laughs> for sure. Fair enough. And those 14 hour work days definitely does not contribute to the uh, work-life balance. But during your 14 hours, what are some things that you get up to? Uh, well, let's think about uh, this morning. What did we do this morning? You know, we, I had conversations around, uh, we had a, a conversation with our legal team um, because uh, we had to take uh, some actions around uh, the risk uh, to do with mink farming. So you may have heard that there's still mink farms in British Columbia, that uh, mink can be very susceptible to COVID-19. And we've had a couple of outbreaks where it's passed between, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 has passed between humans and mink on these farms. And so one of the issues that we looked at was the global risk and uh, how do we mitigate that risk and we had, despite putting in all kinds of measures, we had ongoing transmission on farms. So government made the decision that they were going to phase out mink farming. And so the uh, mink farmers uh, did a, a, um, applied for an injunction to prevent that from happening. And we had to put together the evidence for the lawyers to take to court to say why we're doing this. So that was this morning, the judgment came down that the, uh, the a judge found in our favor and did not grant an injunction, so that's good. Um, we had a long conversation about uh, with our what what I call our restart or our, our public health measures group about um, 
you know, what are we doing next and how is, what's the trajectory? I had an hour long meeting with our, our data folk about where we are. We look at the epidemiology, we talk about why do we see hospitalization in this group versus that group. So that was a, a large part of this morning. Um, I have a couple of meetings this afternoon. Let me just think, what else do we have? Oh, a meeting with a First Nations uh, community who has a lot of concerns about um, reopening and, and letting people back in their community because they've had some illness, particularly in elders, and um, wanting to know how they can um, safely go back to some of the important ceremonies that happen in their communities. Uh, we have a public health leadership call, so we're talking about um, uh, doing another, we, we've done three surveys, uh, um, COVID speak, where we get information from people about how the pandemics affected them and what are the things that are issues for them. And that's been really helpful in helping design um, programs for recovery and understanding. I mean, one of the most important things we heard in the first survey was that across the board, um, it affected everybody negatively, uh, families negatively, that uh, kids weren't in school. So that was a, um, something that we heard no matter what income level, no matter what education level, how many kids they had, that children being in school was incredibly important, not just for their own learning, but for supporting for families, for emotional learning, for um, social interaction, all of those things. And that really um, was one of the reasons why I have focus so much on making sure that our schools remain open through this whole time. Anyway, so, you know, the, 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 the issues are all over the place. <laughs> yeah, you seem to have a very diverse workday um, and work generally and important topics. So what are the three top skills that you need for your job? Yeah, you know what? That's a really good question, because part of my job as the provincial health officer is uh, to be able to, to look at things in the, in the big picture. And I have a um, responsibility to report publicly uh, to the public around issues of health. So making sure that it is about the health aspects that I'm talking about. Um, and uh, one of the things that is incredibly important is to do that, to be able to talk to the public about health and health issues. So communication, um, and how do, we, how do we do that? How do we translate that knowledge so that people understand things? And this pandemic has been a classic example of that. I think the other things that are really important are the same things that we have for anybody who's a, a specialist or an expert, or um, in my case, a physician specialist, is um, having a good grounding in the knowledge base of your profession. So, you know, I know epidemiology, I've spent a lot of time looking at modeling and what does it mean and, and surveillance and understanding how viruses work. And I spend a lot of my time around immunology and the vaccines and understanding vaccine programs. So being able to translate those really complex things into language that people could understand is really important. So you have to be competent. You have to have that knowledge and that expert understanding, you have to be a good communicator. And I, I think you have to be, what's the right word for it, a, a tactful leader. Um, my role is to bring people together and to get the best information possible and to know, um, to have that ability to know when to push and when to stand firm and when to um, save uh, an issue for a day when people are ready for it. And there's 
lots of things that we should be doing. And and uh, my predecessor, Dr. Barry Kendall, used to say, you know, you can make a point or you can make a difference. And sometimes the, the decision makers, like most of the, the major decisions are made by our elected leaders, and that's important. And so my job is to provide them the best possible advice and then um, to find uh, to understand the impacts because they are elected to understand the impacts on the economy, the impacts on different business sectors. And so we work together. I say this a lot and it's important for people in, in universities and especially people who are focusing on research careers that data and evidence evidence never tell you what to do. What they, that it always has to be put in the context of values and preferences and judgment. And we look at um, many different important public health decisions, and it has to be in the right time and the right context where there's a social um, acceptance of those decisions. And we've seen that in the, uh, looking at things like HIV AIDS and how we uh, address the issues, even non-smoking bylaws. You know, when public health said smoking is bad for you, every, the world wasn't ready to hear that. Um, but now, we can't imagine what it would be like without, uh, you know, going to, I can remember going to bars and, and it was just so you wake up the next morning and everything smells like cigarette smoke and it was awful. And we just, we've come a long way in understanding the, the importance of, of uh, non-smoking bylaws in supporting health. So it, there's lots of different things that happen at different times and you have to be able to put them in the right context for people. When we went over the day in your life, there were lots of different people, but are there key stakeholders that you constantly work with on a daily basis? How many people do you have to work with on a daily? Who's even on your team? <laughs> My yeah. office is actually very small, but I am very help, um, thankful. I have a couple of uh, deputy provincial health officers, one of whom is the head of the BCCDC. And the BCCDC is, is essentially the, the scientific arm of, of my office, where we do a lot of the surveillance, where we do a lot of the um, understanding different aspects in the research and the, the applied with health research pieces and the program development around vaccination programs. Um, I also have a team of epidemiologists uh, that work within our office. Um, I work very closely with the Deputy Minister of Health and uh, part of my job is to be uh, to also work with um, the, the senior decision makers in government. So the Minister of Health, who I talk to pretty much daily through this last two years, <laughs> who I'm going to talk to later this afternoon. Um, and then I, I also we have a, a very strong public health service. So we have medical health officers who are in each of the regional health authorities and they have a reporting relationship. So they are the people on the ground doing the work in each of the health authorities, whether it's managing an outbreak in a long-term care home or running an immunization program or testing the drinking water. Um, and they are, uh, we have chief MHOs in each of the health authorities and in the First Nations Health Authority, and they're my core team. So we meet sometimes daily, but uh, lately we're, we're about three times a week that we have calls to talk about the, um, our decisions and how we're going to, what are the issues that we need to deal with consistently across the province and what's the best advice. So, so I deal with them a lot. Right now, of course, we're still doing a lot of things virtually. So I am very excited to be able to see people in person again very soon, I hope. <laughs>
Yeah, everyone hopes that. <laughs> um, what, what is a misconception of the work you and your team do? Well, you know, a lot of uh, other physicians uh, look at public health physicians and say, oh, you're just administrators. You know, you don't actually do clinical medicine. Um, and yeah, I don't see one-on-one -on -one patients, but I see communities as my patients. You know, everybody who's a, a resident in a long-term care home is affected by some of the work that we do. And I have to weigh that in a, in a way that's different from a, a physician who deals with an individual person one-on-one. -on -one. So we absolutely do clinical medicine, but that's the biggest thing. I think, you know, um, having to explain to people what epidemiology is, you know, an epidemiologist and up until the pandemic, um, people thought it was, you know, like a dermatologist, right? Oh, you do skin diseases. <laughs> so I now no, need, no longer need to, um, uh, need to explain to my mother what I do because <laughs> through the pandemic, she, she now understands. But it is, you know, it is, um, I think that's one of the common things that I hear. Oh, you guys are just administrators. It's so interesting how it's almost kind of like a different target group that you're working with. So on that note, you mentioned communication is one of those important skills. What are some of the ways that you and your team ensures that the correct message is shared across all of these platforms, especially when balancing these different groups? Absolutely. And people speak different languages. You know, we talk, I talk about surveillance. And what I mean is the systematic collection of data over time that tells us, you know, who's getting who, who what and where people are being infected by different things. But some people, um, that can be a very triggering word. If, uh, some marginalized communities, you talk about surveillance, and they think it's policing, right? That police are monitoring you and following you, or government is, is following you. So we have to be really careful about the words we and this is something that um, I'm very passionate about. I've learned a lot from working in you know, Ebola in, in, in Northern Uganda, where you understand the community fears and misinformation can be dangerous and lethal. And it can uh, lead people to do things that can put their lives at risk. And very early on in this pandemic, um, you know, I met with my team, we talked about how we were going to do this. I talked with the minister about how we were going to present information to the public. And I believe, and I, my experience tells me that words matter and how you phrase things matters. It matters in how people hear things, but it also matters in setting the tone for how we can respond. And, uh, you know, if we look at um, in a crisis, if you use the wrong words, it can really trigger people to be to, to, to feed that fear that leads to anxiety and anger, or um, and people will lash out. And we've seen that happen in this pandemic. We've seen that happen in crises all the time. Um, so if you approach it the right way, you can build on the, the things that, that, that are positive around a crisis, people's sense of altruism people's sense of connectedness and belonging. And we know from the work that uh, I've done and other, others have done around how do we get through traumatic experiences? Some of it is our own innate resiliency based on our experiences, our family and our friends, but a lot of it is based on the community. So you recover better if your community recovers better. So that was a lot of what we um, talked about early on in this. And I really consciously made a decision, you know, not to use war analogies or fight analogies. And, you know, sadly, it's, we see the impact 
right now in Ukraine, the impact. Um, because war, if you use war analogies for um, for a communicable disease, it's divisive. It's it, it splits people. It it um, gives rise to the feelings of conflict, and we don't want that because we don't have control over uh, um, an infectious disease, and so we need to find things that bind us together and help us to support each other. And um, we we talked about because you need to have some analogy to help people understand what we're going through. We talked about. Um, you know, fires. And, and somebody was telling me he wanted to use the analogy that it's like a forest fire, but we've had very severe wildfire seasons here in British Columbia. And again, so I didn't think that was appropriate because it it evokes memories of, of helplessness and feelings of of distress for people. So um, we, we landed on this is a storm and that we're in a global storm. Um, and so thinking about waves and um, storms and winds and changing directions and facing different things. And the other thing that I think is really important, it allowed us to, to talk about the fact that we're all in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. And that to me is about communicating that you don't always know that next person's story. You don't always know what's happening with them. So instead of reacting, um, you know, find compassion, understanding that we all have a common suffering. We're all going through a bad time. And the way that they may be angry or acting out is because they're they're barely hanging on. So you can uh, adjust your own way of dealing with that. Um, and you know that's where the things that, that I talk a lot about about kindness, about um, compassion, which is understanding other people are suffering, and being able to take that step back and be supportive with each other rather than reactive. So uh, I mean, it sounds. It doesn't sound very scientific and medical, but I think it's really, really important. Um, and I hope that's one of the things that it helps get through um, in BC anyway, uh, ways of trying to support each other through this. And, and heaven knows in this past year, we faced so many things from the pandemic to the heat dome to the atmospheric rivers that wiped out um, uh, all of the roads from the lower mainland. I mean, it has been really, uh, you know, the the discovery of unmarked graves and to come to come it's disruptive. Those are things that we need to have compassion for each other and support each other to get through. Well, you mentioned misinformation, and I think that's a big aspect. So when that comes up, what are some strategies? that you do employ to target and counteract those misinformation that's spreading. Yeah, misinformation can spread so fast. And, yeah. and there's two parts to it. You know, there's misinformation, which is um, people mostly unintentionally um, twisting things and getting it wrong. Um, and then there's disinformation, which is people intentionally spreading um, wrong information. And we've seen both of those, and they can be very, very destructive. And we see a lot of it, um, you know, in the recent protests that have happened across the, the country. And you think, you know, some people would say, how do you believe that? How do you believe that there's this conspiracy theory and that, that it doesn't actually exist? And, and there are um, entities, global entities, that are actually intentionally spreading incorrect information to try and disrupt people. And we know that happens. And 
it's uh, I've been learning about that. So um, the misinformation is a little bit easy. I think across the board, our, our response has always been to, to take the high road and to be positive. So instead of saying, what are you crazy? You say, well, here's why I believe this. And here's the information that I have that shows this. And you know, this is why I'm vaccinated. This is why I um, have my children vaccinated because these are the, the um, important pieces of, of truth. And, and here's how you know this is credible information and suggest to people. Uh, I think it's interesting because I, I talk to a lot of young people who have, you know, been so differentially negatively impacted by this pandemic and have had so little agency in trying to um, respond and get things done. So um, they, they do tell me, especially teenagers, that their parents are very susceptible to misinformation and disinformation online. And, you know, my, my nephew uh, was like rolling his eyes saying, you know, can she tell that that's that's fake? That's, you know, do they not know that this stuff is fake online? Um, but it, people, you know, I think young people are much more savvy about what's being spread online um, than uh, than people who haven't grown up in that atmosphere. You have um, multiple roles. One of them is making policy decision and one is communicating with the public. So how do you balance internal communication, uh, strategy, policy with public communication? Yeah, really good questions. And, you know, a lot of the, the stuff that we do internally is, is we look at, you know, we, we look at all the different scenarios and we argue or discuss and debate, I guess debate is the best word about what does this really mean? And what, do, what are the influences? Are, you know, wh why are we seeing this group of people being more affected than that group of people? What is the best way to approach things? And so there's a lot of opportunity and space to talk about a wide variety of options. What I'm learning though, is when I talk to the public, Nuance is a challenge. And if you sound like you're um, trying to, uh, it, some things need to be a, a bit more um, direct in black and white, even though they might be shades of gray when you're talking about things, because nuance can be seen as, as oh, well, she doesn't really believe in it. Uh, so, you know, things like, should I get vaccinated? The answer is absolutely, unequivocally, yes. When you know, in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with people, I would say, well, you know, here's your risks, here's the benefits, here's the things that you need to be concerned about, here's how the vaccines work, and, and you go through that conversation. But when I communicate in a, in a press briefing to the public, if you say, well, you have to look at the risks and benefits, people hear, oh, she's saying no. Uh, so it, it is really interesting how we have to be... Um, that I need to be really, really clear about specific things and then make sure that we give the, the caveats in a language that is understandable and doesn't undermine the importance of, of the specific message, whatever it is. So it's complicated. I mean, knowledge translation is not easy because sometimes there's a teeny little bit of risk and you want people to be aware of that risk, but it's not like um, it, it's it's not like it's 50-50. Right? <laughs> the risk of, of getting sick with COVID if you're somebody who's 70 and the risk of the vaccine, I mean, it's like 
logarithmic scale more risky to get sick with COVID. So, um, but but yeah, there is this very small risk that you're going to have a reaction to the vaccine, and and that's real. But how do you put that in a perspective that people can understand, and still support them making their own decisions about this? With these black or white decisions that you have to share, do you think that communicating those gray areas, looking back, you mentioned how it might seem a little wishy-washy on your end. Do you think by communicating those gray areas that would have made people more adaptive to the constantly changing guidelines and ongoing new variants and things like that? That's a really good question because um, I try to message that, you know, I'll tell you what we know now. Mm. And then when we know more, which we will in time, um, things will change. But change is also causes ripples. Every time we make a change, it causes ripples. So what I try to do is look at, um, because every time we change anything, even a small thing, there's all this, well, what does that mean to me? What does that mean to me? What am I going to do now? What do I do? <laughs> whether it's a business, whether it's individuals, whether it's in long-term care, whether it's, you know, the whole spectrum of things. And I, I think it's like throwing pebbles in a, in a still pond. You get all of these waves and then they get lower and lower and lower. Then you make another change on those waves. So um, we have been trying to, you know, I, I get very specific about that. I say, you know, Omicron is a good example. We were getting through the Delta wave. We had things uh, in place that worked for Delta. And then Omicron was different. And we had to put in place some things that it's like, it's a piece of a puzzle. And we're filling in pieces of the puzzle to understand, okay, it's way more transmissible. Is it causing more breakthrough uh, in people who are vaccinated? And the answer turned out to be yes. Is it causing breakthrough in people who've had previous infections? The answer turned out to be yes. But we didn't know all that. Is it causing more severe illness? Who is it causing more severe illnesses? Who's more at risk? And so um, trying to use analogies that help people understand that we're putting these pieces together. And when we know enough, then we can make change. And being very specific, this is a change. We're doing this today because this is what we know. But when we know more, we may change again. But that's hard. Um, you know, mask wearing is a very classic example where it, it, there was a lot of considerations early on. We don't have a culture of wearing masks in this in, in our country like they do in, in many other places. There was a shortage of masks, particularly medical masks, and it was really a focus on making sure we had them available where they were absolutely needed in healthcare settings. Um, but we've gradually uh, come to understand that, yeah, masks can make a difference in primarily in source reduction, pre preventing me from coughing out things to others, and, and the other, a little bit the other way as well. But um, that's been a really challenging one. And for me, it's, it's like masks are one of those layers of protection. And the more virus we have in our community, each of those layers becomes more important. So last summer, when we had very low rates of, of virus across most of the province, um, you know, we went from having a mask mandate to saying, you know, wear masks in these indoor settings, but you make your own personal choice based on your risk and based on the setting that you're in. Um, and then as it ramped up again, uh, we made sure that that extra layer was, was in place again. And now we're getting to a place where it's, you know, they're not going to be needed all the time. But it's a tool and, and trying to help people understand it's a tool that you can use in certain settings when you when there's a lot more risk um, than other settings. 
and hopefully we can use these tools and bring them out when we need them and then put them away when we don't need them. That's what we're hoping to, to get to. So when you get criticized by the public, what happens backstage? So did it ever happen, for example, that you get criticized uh, and you went back to the evidence uh, to double check or anything? Oh, all the time. Yeah, I'm always second guessing myself. <laughs> what do I do? I go back and I cry. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I, there's, uh, you know, sometimes it, you just can't win. And there are people who interpret everything that I say in the way that they hear it. Um, and some of it is how we're preconceived to hear things. So if we have preconceived notions about things, what we might hear um, it, it fits into those preconceived ideas of what we want to hear or what we think we think. Um, and that can be positive or negative. So uh, I do have to um, do a lot of meditation to help me get over it, deep breathing. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I, you know, and I'm also very, very cautious. And that's where my team comes in and BCCDC and the, um, uh, the researchers that we consult with, that we look at the data, that we are confident in understanding the data that we have. And, you know, some of the, the more challenging things are when other clinicians, um, physicians, who have different beliefs or interpret the data in a different way um, feel like they have uh, the that that the, they come out publicly and criticize you know me and and other public health officials across the the country that can be really challenging um, because they don't always have a, a deep background a background in epidemiology and you know some of them are are um, on that. A spectrum of wanting to spread misinformation and um, it's we try and have that respectful conversation um, but there's no point in engaging in public debate with people and tit-for-tat things because it's just it's it gives them wind in some ways. Uh, I think during COVID there's definitely a lot of um, epidemiologists who became epidemiologists just from googling overnight so for sure a lot of people say that I did my research I spent hours on looking at YouTube videos and so <laughs> you are wrong <laughs> and there's some YouTube videos are really helpful and others not so much yeah and then I think digital literacy also plays into this but that's a whole nother topic so we're going to go back to how your decisions really impact all industries and people across BC. And it's not just like a health thing, but health is really an intersectional topic with all these social determinants of health. So with that being said, do you have any processes put into place to evaluate these consequences and how your decisions will impact all these different industries? And what does that process look like? Absolutely. And they're not all mine. <laughs> so uh, things that we learn early on is that uh, uh, there are people who have expertise in all those different areas. And I don't know if you remember early on when we, you know, we're reopening restaurants and people were saying, well, how are you going to know? So we have an industry table that we meet with regularly that is restaurants, bars and pubs and liquor serving premises. We have an industry table that is around um, the arts and sports and where we talk with them about well, what makes sense for you? Is it, uh, you know, this is our aim. We want to reduce transmission in these settings. Um, how does that work? You know, what are the things that make a difference? So that's why we would um, come up with things like 
um, yeah, youth sports can happen, but without spectators in the indoor setting. So, so we consult a lot with the different um, places that are impacted. One of the things I did very early on was work with WorkSafe BC and uh, the um, Ministry of Labor. Um, and so we had, um, we talked, we had truckers that were part of a, a group. We had the food processing plants um, because they all had very specific needs that I am no expert in. <laughs> but um, what my area, our area of expertise is to say, well, you know, these are the things that make it risky. If you're indoors, if you're close together, if you um, don't have sick leave policies, because that means people can't stay home when they're sick. So we um, said, here's the things that are that need to be addressed. And you are the experts in your industry come up with those. So we came up with things like COVID safety plans that were very specific. And they were, um, uh, I, th I think they were one of the big success stories that we had in BC that allowed us to keep, we, we kept most industries open through most of this pandemic. Um, we never had a you know lockdown in the same sense of, of many other places. So, but it was based on, you know how to run your business here's the things that you need to take into account and work safe um, inspectors and public health inspectors worked with each industry to come up with guidance that was specific to those industries that made sense that worked in those industries. The other thing that we really wanted to do early on that I thought was incredibly important was look at the what we call the, the unicorns, the unintended consequences, both positive and negative on society of the measures that we had to put in place to manage COVID. And I, I mentioned that one of the things we did was surveys that periodically, but we also have a, a group that's looked at different indicators and we prioritize them and it's about measuring the impacts. Um, were there some things that were beneficial that we need to um, do more of? Were there some th things that were differentially impacting different populations? So we know from this work, um, so we have a very dedicated team that looks at the data around this and we've engaged with uh, different communities and we have a South Asian community um, group that uh, we collected data specifically on impacts on that community and we worked with community leaders to say how do we address this thing you know how do we have safe weddings <laughs> during wedding season um, you know how do we address the fact that about 30 percent of uh, the uh, truckers in the province are South Asian, and we had special immunization clinics for them in specific, you know, so these are, how do we look at the differential impact, um, the inequities that we existed previously, that were again heightened by this pandemic, um, low wage in, in low wage earners who worked in industries like um, your grocery store clerks and your uh, people working in food production um, who were essential that we, we needed and how do we support them? What are the things that were important um, to support them? So we have this uh, project and it, there's a website that helps uh, that we put up things. Uh, the, the ones that are up there now are around mental health issues and we've seen uh, mental health issues in young people, for example. Uh, we have a, one on the impact on um, childhood immunization programs, the, the impact on alcohol and substance use. So, yeah, there's lots of really important societal consequences. But I also think that there's a lot of data there, and there's going to be many, many PhD theses about 
every different aspect of this and what worked and what didn't work. And we need to learn from that because, uh, you know, I think we've learned now that we are all connected in so many ways. And if we don't prepare ourselves to be able to be more resilient and uh, that, you know, the next thing that comes along is going to put us in difficult places as well. Yeah, and often, you know, we only read about decisions and guidelines uh, that you make in the news. And it's really interesting to hear what's going on in the background, and especially that you're working with so many stakeholders, also from the community together. Um, so looking back at your career since COVID-19 started, is there anything that you would have done differently? Oh, man, you know, I, I, I'm not at the point where I'm going to go into the regrets yet. Um, I think my the things that I, I worry about are the times that I wasn't able to effectively communicate changes and that led to a lot of anxiety for people. And it's, I think through that a lot, you know, the masking is one of them, testing is another. Uh, the fact that the chief science officer uh, accused us doing a massive experiment when we um, increased the interval between dose one and dose two for uh, for the vaccines, but that was you know that was based on on good solid evidence and what we knew about immunology and what we knew about vaccines, and it's proven, thankfully, to uh, to mean that people get stronger, longer lasting protection, and it's one of the reasons why we. You know, vaccines have worked so well. And anyway, so yeah, there's lots of the different communication points that I would have liked to try and explain better. To wrap up, what advice would you give to future budding public health experts? <laughs> that is an incredible field to be in. Um, it's it, very challenging sometimes, but you can also make, you can affect change in a broad way that makes people's lives better and in ways that, that you may not realize. And, you know, the things that we do that affect people's health, mental health and wellness um, can um, really make a massive difference. And uh, it, it's exciting and interesting and you get to play with like really interesting data and understand things at a level and it, it, it's very varied as well there are many different things that you can do in different times and I you know I, I just think it's fascinating um, and that you have the ability to impact in a positive way people's lives not just individually 101 but at that community level Perfect. So without a doubt, making public health decisions is very impactful and has a huge ripple, ripple effect across all industries and individuals across BC. It was a great conversation to get a deeper dive into what some of the processes are behind the scenes, such as deciding what, when, and how to communicate to different groups, all while funneling an overwhelming amount of data into kind of targeted digestible messages. So thank you again to Dr. Bonnie Henry. DBH for sharing a little bit more of the backend processes and really highlighting the importance of KT or knowledge translation as a case study for COVID. That's it for today, right from the heart of Vancouver. Thanks to UBC AMS for supporting this podcast. Keep in touch in the meanwhile on Twitter at Raincoat Podcast. Till next time, stay dry and stay safe.